Well, our text today is out of Romans. I'm privileged to start a series. Nathan called me, asked me to start the series because he had to be in Utah to do a wedding for a close friend. And uh, so I was very honored to do this. This was the first of uh, four in this series based on Romans chapter 12. The actual scriptures, if you want to write those down, is chapter 12 of Romans, verses 9 through about 21. We're just going to focus on two verses in chapter 12, 9 and 10 this morning. So Romans 9, Romans 10, Romans 9 and 10, Romans 12, (laughs) Romans 12, verses 9 and 10, I'm reading from the ESV translation, says this, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection. Now, the rest of the text that will follow the next few weeks lists four features, the first of which we'll talk about today, which is love, four features of healthy relationships. Today, we'll talk about love, as I said, next week and the next three, Pastor Nathan will talk about honor, harmony, and peace. Honor among ourselves, having honor for one another, having, living in harmony with one another, and also be at, live at peace with all men as much as is possible. So, repeating our text today, verse 9, let love be genuine. That, that one's, that's going to be our main theme. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection. So, what exactly is genuine love? You know, we all know what genuine leather is. And we know what the alternative is. You know, what do they, they keep coming up with new names to try to trick us. You ever notice that? Leatherette, it's like a little leather, you know? And faux leather, I guess that's a French word, isn't it? But it means fake. (laughs) Every girl wants to get a what? A genuine diamond, huh? Nothing says I love you like a fake diamond ring, huh? (laughs) So this text is saying, is using the word genuine, you know? Let love be genuine. So what does that mean? Well, Paul kind of unpacks it in these verses. First of all, the Greek word that is translated in English, genuine, is actually the word from Roman theater. And you'll know the word when you hear it. So Roman actors called hypocrites, they put the emphasis on the last syllable rather than hippocrites, it's hippocrites, literally means a pretender. And in Roman theater, the, the actors would wear masks. And that mask would depict the character that they represent, and then they would act behind the mask. So it means a pretend. So Paul is saying basically that genuine love doesn't pretend. It has no hidden agendas, no secrets. There's no hypocrisy. So you could translate it, let love be without hypocrisy. Second, in verse 10, Paul kind of unpacks love further. He says, love abhors what is evil and holds fast to what is good. And then finally, he says in verse 10, that love, let brotherly love, love each other with brotherly love. 
So it means that we, the way we practice genuine love is inside the family, inside the nuclear family, the biological family, inside the family of believers. So these are kind of additions. He's, he's unpacking what he means by genuine love in chapter 12, verses 9 and 10. So genuine love in Paul's framing here is, number one, it's not hypocritical. There's no pretending or agendas. Number two, it's, it sets clear boundaries between what is right and wrong. It abhors evil and it holds fast or clings to what is good. And finally, it's proactively unselfish. It's practiced in the context of a community, a nuclear family, brotherly love. The, the word brotherly love there in the Greek is phileo, which, from which we get Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. It's the idea of family love, community love, the love we have in these intimate relationships of the Christian community. Now, that's all tough to do. It's easy to say, I love you, honey, you know. Uh, but it's hard to do. We're all a little bit hypocritical. We're pretending, you know. You find that out every time you go. How are you? Your life may be falling apart, and you come to church, and how are you? I'm fine. <clears throat> In the movie, uh, Aaron Brockovich, Aaron, played by Julie Roberts, comes home one night and she's, you know, she's feeling really bad because she's away from her kids a lot doing this big lawsuit. <clears throat> and she comes to her oldest son who's in bed and she sits down on the edge of the bed and sort of apologizes to him about why mom has to be gone a lot. And he's laying there where you can see this 12-year-old kind of grimace on his face and he's like, fine. <laughs> so she tries to explain a little more you know, how mom's doing important work and helping people. And he's like, fine! <laughs> and then he turns his round and he curls up in the bed with his back towards her. Well, he says, fine. But everything about him, about his body language, is saying it's not fine. <laughs> he's shouting something totally different. And we all kind of do this as adults, only as adults we have become more mature. And we fake things. And I get it. Sometimes it's important. You just don't lay your stuff out in front of everybody because not everyone is trustworthy enough to hear it. But sometimes we do that way too much and to our own detriment. We are all great pretenders. In some way, that's a way for us to avoid dealing with the issues that are affecting our relationships. Alcoholics Anonymous has learned how to force this issue. They have learned that honesty, that transparent, non-hypocritical honesty is a primary requ requirement for recovery from addiction. If you don't get honest with yourself and with others about your moral bankruptcy, you're never going to heal. And that can do with alcoholism or any form of addictive behavior or hidden things. In an AA meeting, people sit around in a circle and confess, willingly uncovering their failures and shedding their hypocrisy in front of everybody. Hi, my name is Joe, and I'm an alcoholic. That's tough. It's tough to get to that point. But the folks who get there come away realizing that was the beginning of my healing in an AA meeting, Joe confronts his own issues. But sometimes in real life, 
it, it becomes our job to confront someone we love. And that is a part of genuine love. We have to confront Joe about his addiction, about how his behavior is hurting us or hurting someone we love. That's really hard when I'm Joe, I'm the husband, or Sue, who's my wife, or Johnny, who's our son, and someone has to confront someone else. That's tough. But God's word says genuine love. Let genuine love It requires us to take off the mask, be honest and clear about what's going on, what's wrong, and have the courage to either confess or to confront. Paul talks about this in Ephesians chapter 4, and I guess we don't have our stuff. So Ephesians 4, I'll read this. It's kind of a long thing, but it's important to to just really listen to Paul's heart as we go through this. And right in the center, he he used these words that I'll stop and emphasize. So he's talking about Jesus, and he says, So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers, in other words, Christian leadership. Christ himself gave these leaders to equip his people for works of service. So that the body of Christ may be built up until we all come into the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature. So Christian leadership is to help us grow. He goes on, that we attain to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, here's the here's verse, instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow up to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So instead of immaturity, instead of childishness, instead of being blown around by every wind and tossed about by every scheme, instead, he says, speaking the truth in love. I believe that that sentence surmises anything, summarizes anything. It summarizes what Paul means when he says, let love be genuine. Genuine love requires us to be courageous and kind. See, speaking the truth. It's easy to speak the truth. You know, I I have no trouble... Well, I used to have a lot of trouble. I was a coward when Beth and I were first married. (laughs) She was a courageous one. I'll talk about that in a minute. But it's easy to just speak the truth. You know, when you don't really care what someone else's feels, and you don't really care whether you hurt them, in fact, you really would like to hurt them, you know. Speaking the truth is easy, but speaking the truth in love requires some reflection, huh? You got to think about it first. How can I help this person How can my courage to speak something about them help them, not just destroy them, like I feel like I want to do? Speaking the truth is easy, 
Speaking of the truth in love is not. It takes courage and carefulness to do that. You know, we all long for the safety and the intimacy of trusted relationships. We want that, whether it's in our families or in our church community, the people that we respect and want their approval. We all long for this intimacy and nearness and belonging that comes from trusted relationships. This is how it happens. Speaking the truth in love is the, the way it works. There's no other way, easier way to get there. So what does speaking the truth in love do? Well, it says, you love me enough to talk to me about my behavior, to call me out, to confront me, to look me in the eye. And it says, I love you enough to tell you how you're hurting me. Or what you've done is wrong. Or I trust you enough and love you enough to admit my failure to you. Genuine love, let love be genuine, Paul said. Genuine love is personal, huh? It's getting really personal. It's very specific, too. I love you, you know, it's, it's like, here's the thing we're going to talk about. It's very specific, and it is willing to hurt someone for the purpose not of damage, but of healing. During their teenage years, one of our children got into trouble with a member of the opposite sex. Now, I have four kids, and in order to protect their anonymity, I'm not going to tell you which gender it was. It's going to use a him, her, or a she, he, or, or a them, or whatever. But they got into trouble, mid-teens, and I found a note, and that was the reveal. And I went to this child and sat down in this child's bedroom and said, we have to talk. Told him I found the note and I said, This is the end of this relationship. And I kept my I kept my composure. You know, speaking the truth in love means you gotta be in control of your faculties. If you're mad and blowing up inside, this is not the time to go try to speak the truth in love. <laughs> it's the time to reflect and say, Lord, help me to do this right. Because you don't want to damage anymore. You want to be a healing agent. So I said, you're never going to see this person again. If you see them on the sidewalk, you're going to turn and walk the other way. If your phone rings, you're not going to answer it. In fact, you're going to delete the, the number from your phone. I said, I know you have some angst, and I know some of that angst probably was part of the contributing to why you got into trouble. And the angst came from the fact that Beth and I were struggling in our marriage, and the kids saw it. Now, we never fought in front of our kids. We were really careful about that kind of thing. And that's a, that, I can tell you, families, if you're fighting in front of your children, you are damaging your kids because they find their total identity in you and in the stability you provide. And if you're wrecking that by not being careful, you're really hurting your kids. And I would appeal to you to get help so you don't do that. But we, we weren't, but... You know, sanguine children, if you know sanguine, if you know the, the four, you know, 
the four types of personalities. The sanguines are the party kids. You know, they're the ones that are outgoing. And we have two of our four are sanguines. So this is one of them. And sanguine kids are very sensitive. All kids are sensitive to what's going on in the family, but particularly sanguine kids. <clears throat> so this had an impact. And when they, this one child noticed our, you know, mom and dad were not as loving, not as affectionate, more cool. I said to this child, I said, I know some of it happened because of us and that's on us. I said, it's kind of like being in a car wreck. You know, it's not your fault. You're driving down the road and a drunk came out and just slammed in the side of your car and you, you went to the hospital and you woke up after the surgery and you, had, you didn't have one of your legs. You lost a leg. Now you've got to figure out what am I going to do with the rest of my life? And you're mad. I said, you have, you have some right to be mad. But here's the thing, I said, you can choose to go through the rest of your life mad, or you can choose to go through the rest of your life to figuring out, okay, I'm a one-legged person. I gotta, I gotta figure out how to be a one-legged person. I suffered some loss. So I unpacked that little metaphor a little bit. I said, you know, you, I'm, I'm drawing a boundary here, and I said, you can hate me. You probably will for a little while, but I said, I can, I can take some hate. I can, I can deal with some hate, it, you know, for a while. But I said, what I can't do is stand idly by while you flush your life down the toilet. I said those exact words. So our child complied with some hate and <laughs> some inconsistency. Some years later, I don't remember how many, this child came back to me and said, Dad, thank you. You saved my life. You saved my life. Proverbs 17, verse 6 says, Faithful are the wounds from a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. If all we're ever doing with our buddies is smiling and kissing, eh, Genuine love takes some tough, courageous people. Proverbs 27, 17 says, Iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. And if you don't believe that's true, get married, and you'll find out a man sharpens his wife, and a wife sharpens her husband. <laughs> Beth and I are coming up on 48 years of marriage in April. 48 years. Thank you. <laughs> but we had some tough we had some tough roads to walk. Thank God we survived and our family is experiencing that survival and we have such a great family now and and I attribute so much of it to God's grace and and just the fact that we stayed together. And if that's not your story, this is not to condemn, but it's to encourage you to take where you are and begin building on these principles. When we were first married, I, I was attracted to two things about Beth. So this is the guy story, okay? First of all, her, she was beautiful. You know, I was attracted to my wife's beauty. It's the first thing for every guy. And then the thing I really liked about her personality is we start to get to know each other. And I, she was very forthright. I was much more reserved. I was, you know, the, the positive way of saying that is I was diplomatic. <laughs> the 
she was just said it like it is, and I loved that about her. It was very attractive to me because it was different than me. You know, but they, if they, they, you know, they say if, if love is a dream, marriage is the alarm clock. <laughs> I'm sorry, if you're not married, just pay. <laughs> you know, usually after we settle in, and that might be the first year, it might be the first five years, I'm not putting any time on this thing when that alarm clock goes off, but just something starts to happen. That which was initially attractive becomes irritating. You're not like me at all. I'm like, well, duh, you know. <laughs> Opposites do attract. We find in other people who are different than us something really, really attractive. We're, we're, we wish we were like them, but then later that kind of becomes... Irritating. This incredible woman I dated isn't as always incredible anymore. And this guy who was so attentive to me when we were dating and that first, now he's distracted all the time. Where's the love? You know, women like to be a, like an attentive guy and guys like a woman to be incredible all the time. After 12 years of marriage and four children, Beth's say-it-like-it-is quality had turned for me into a sort of a serious lack of tact. <laughs> and, and, and I'm being real careful here, okay? You know, I, she might, she's sitting right there. She might do like Carol Kane did to Billy Crystal in The Princess Bride and stood up and said, Liar! <laughs> So Beth's initial attraction to me was because of my clarity about God's calling and my strength of leadership. After a while, it became a nagging lack of attentiveness to her needs and my independent behavior. So my independent behavior, here's my confessional time. I picked on my wife a little bit. My independent behavior. I, I had a lot of that. I did stuff, you know, I bought stuff. I made plans without telling her. And she's like, you never told me that. And I said, yes, I did. And you know you didn't. And, you know, she was right. In my mind, it just oozes out of my brain and into hers, you know. And I just, I was just blind to independent behavior. And guys, just a clue here. There's a book you can read by Willard Harley called Love Busters. And this is one of the love busters. It really hurts your wife when you don't communicate. It tells her what she hears is, I'm not very important. So we were living in Taiwan, and um, we went there with one child, about a year old, and Beth was pregnant with year, uh, child number two. It was our intern training years in Taiwan. and So she's about four months from giving birth when we moved there. And so it was getting close, and I had this, I was not my boss. I had a boss over me. I was an intern, so I was scheduled to go to the south of the island to set up some meetings, and um, we were getting close to the birth, you know, and you know how it is, it's, it's we say in Thai, rao, rao, you know, it's kind of like approximately it'll come, the baby will come at this time, and uh, so I'm telling Beth, I think, I think it'll be okay, and she's telling me, no, I don't think you should go, you know, and so of course, in my godly sense of God's mission and purpose, I went anyway, and um, big mistake, <laughs> down on the south of the island, running around doing what I had to do, and got back to the place where I was staying, which is like a missionary compound, 
And the, the hostess comes running out when I get out of the taxi and says, so you got to go home, Doug, Mr. Gaiman? I said, why? She says, your wife had a baby. I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm dead. So I <laughs> jumped on the bus and took the two, three-hour trip back to where we lived in Daijong in the north, central, and and I run into the house, you know, and because that's the only place I knew where to go. The hospital was in another city a couple hours away. I ran in the house, and there's my wife sitting at the end of the day that our, our son was born. She'd been 12 hours earlier, and I ran in the house sometime in the early evening, and there she's sitting in the rocking chair in our house, all fleshy-cheeked and beautiful and rosy with a little baby in her arms with the little tears running down her face. I'm like, boy, I will be... I will never live this down, you know. It's like, and she's used it to remind me. Amen. <laughs> now, in my defense, we had another child born about six years later. This time we were living in Thailand, and I was scheduled to go to Sri Lanka where we did a lot of work. And, I, and, and again, it was the same scenario. And I said, I said to Beth, I don't think I should go. Took me a while, but I can be learned, you know. And she said, no, no, I really have peace. I have God's peace that you should go. I think you should go. And I'm like, you know. So I went, and we did like two weeks in the country. And um, I came back. Now, we lived about three hours outside of Bangkok. And uh, I came back with my colleague that was on our team. And we came out through immigration out to the public area, and Beth was standing there with a big round belly. And I'm like, what are you doing here? And she said, I've been here three days. And I came up here for a doctor's appointment, and he said, you're going to have a baby. Don't go back, to, back home three hours away. And I said, holy cow, you know. And um, so we jumped in a bus and went back home so we could get clothes and stuff and came right back up, went to bed that same day. It was like morning when I arrived from Sri Lanka. It was a red, red eye. We went back home, got home about noon, did some stuff at home, you know, showers and packing, and got back up to Bangkok about 5 in the evening. Went to bed, and Trevor was born 5 a.m. the next morning. So, listen to your wives, boys. <laughs> so we learned, very slowly we learned, very slowly through crises, because I guess we're both very stubborn people, and welcome to the human race. You know, you think, I'm not stubborn. Well, you find out when you, somebody you love wants you to do something different, you find out how stubborn you are. It's not easy. It takes a huge amount of humility self-examination, courage, first to listen, first to listen. That is tough for all of us to listen. Just listen. Just shut your mouth and open your heart and let the other person talk. To learn, to actually hear what's coming and saying, man, I really screwed up. To not get defensive, to shut the whole conversation down by throwing back, that's called an argument. And neither party learns anything if you don't figure out what's really going on. You just 
basically decide to push, kick the can down the road to the future. And then to speak with courage and carefulness back and forth. Now, we learned how to do this in a marriage retreat that we went to. We had to sit down together in private. We learned the tools in a, in a, in a session, you know, a plenary session. And then we had to go to our room and practice it. We had to sit down together face-to-face, looking at each other, and take turns. You go first. <laughs> you know, no, you go first. And tell each other the truth about one thing that was bugging us. Not 10. And not, not what we call, um, what's the word I'm looking for? You, you know, language that just, you're just dumb. You know, that's what's bugging me. You're just dumb, you know. That doesn't help anybody, folks. Don't use that kind of language. Don't use these languages that's inflammatory. Pick Pick a one thing. You did this. And that hurt me. We learned how to do that. My wife spoke the truth to me, and then I would listen, and then I had to, and then we had to talk about it briefly and pray together, and then I had to take my turn and speak to her what she had done. So Beth had to, because she's a tell-it-like-it-is kind of woman, she had to be careful with her tone of voice and her volume that sounded scolding to me. Parenting, if you're using Thomas Harris's motif, you know, the I'm okay, you're okay guy. Are you guys familiar with that book? You know, the three ways in which we communicate. Two of them are wrong. <laughs> One is we parent people. Are you a parent? You know, you get mad and you just parent. And the other, the other way wrong is going to your child and just whine. Why are you being so mean? You know, <laughs> pouting. Believe it or not, Beth parented me and I went into my child. That's the, way we, that's the way we rolled for years. Now, I was the more spiritual one, you know, so I would... I wouldn't say anything. I would just shut her out for three days. You know, later I learned that's called passive-aggressive behavior, you know. So I was the wuss thinking I'm way more spiritual than her. I don't use that kind of mean language. And so she had to learn how to tone it down and talk to me without scolding or parenting me and tell me how I was not honoring her. And I had to man up and be courageous enough to tell Beth how, she, how her scolding or how her outbursts was hurting me. You think, man, I don't get hurt. I'm a tough guy. I'm like, the heck you don't. Somebody you love is, is, is speaking mean to you. It hurts you. And it, the, the least it does is it alienates it ruins, it kills intimacy. And then we had to pray together. So we were learning how to have genuine love with each other. We were learning how to speak the truth in love. And I tell you this, the results were amazing. Intimacy started coming back. Intimacy started coming back. I started liking this woman again. I mean it. I mean, we, were, we, we had a... This, this was something we struggled. Now, maybe your marriage is, our, our marriage struggled for years over these things. We struggled. And I remember telling one of my buddies who was kind of one of my confidants, you know, he was my little mini AA group, you know. <laughs> I told him, I'm really beginning to like Beth again. And it's scaring the, you know what, out of me. <laughs> it's like, it just happens. Why? Because genuine love is built on this idea of becoming defenseless in front of someone. 
It's the Adam and Eve story. They were naked in the garden, nothing hidden, and they were not ashamed. That's, that's the metaphor of the Garden of Eden before sin. They were naked in front of each other and not ashamed. Now, Beth and I still do this today. We have disagreements. But the neat thing of it is we've learned how this principle works, and so we just immediately tell each other what's going on in love. We just, we don't, we rarely, if we do ever get kind of heated, then we look at what's going on here. And we recognize we're both tired. We're, there's something we're just really tired or not feeling good, and that's why this is happening. And then we just shut it down. We say, this is not the time to deal with this. But we've learned this so well that now we still hurt each other, and we still make mistakes with each other, and, but we talk and, for, and apologize and forgive within minutes rather than days and days of this stuff building up resentment. That's the fruit of a long, long relationship in marriage. I'm very grateful for it. Now I want to wrap this thing up. Truth, truths, I'm going to tie this to God's character and help us understand why this is so important to Christian faith. Truth spoken in love reveals God's character. This is who God is. This is how God behaves in the best possible way because it reveals the two most important features about him. Number one, Truth is conveyed in words. It has to be communicated in words. God was the designer of language. Truth conveys by words and it brings clarity that helps us align with his purposes and helps us become aware of where we've broken his ways or purposes, how we've done something. Love Beside it, truth spoken in love, love is conveyed by actions, tone of voice, body language, acts of service, demonstrates God's kindness and how much he cares for us. These two have to work together. Love without truth is compromise. Just means, I'll just, I just don't have the courage to deal with it, I'll just compromise. Let them go on, I'll just act like I love them. And truth without love is mean. Truth spoken in love is the quickest road to intimacy in relationships. The, incarnate, the incarnation of Jesus Christ was God's perfect illustration of this principle. In Hebrews 1, verse 1, the writer, I believe Apostle Paul, some people disagree who wrote Hebrews, but the writer of Hebrews says this, the very first words in this book of the Bible, Hebrews, God who at various times and in different ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, his words, has in these last days spoken to us by his son. When, when Jesus, when God speaks to us through his son, we don't just hear words. We see the very life and grace and kindness and sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross for our sins. John, John, the Apostle John, wrote in his, in his book, the Gospel, verse 14 of the first chapter, he says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. God is looking for people. God is looking for us to be this living example of Jesus. Can you do that at home, husbands? Can you do that at home, wives? Can you do that at home, parents? 
Can you do that with your friends? <clears throat> David Wilkerson, I think I've told this story before, but it's this, this, one, this story so impact, impacts me. David Wilkerson left a little town in Pennsylvania not far where I grew up in Pennsylvania and moved to New York City in 1955, which was the year I was born. So I grew up knowing about David Wilkerson, little country preacher, moved to New York City to help the gangs of New York find Jesus. He, he comes to know the Mau Mau gang. All of Teen Challenge, if you've ever heard of Teen Challenge, was started by David Wilkerson. It's all over the world now. Back in these early days, he starts witnessing to the Mau Mau tribe, which was one of the most brutal, murderous, racist tribes of young men in, in uh, the Bronx of New York. And Nicky Cruz was one of the leaders of that gang. And David witnessed it to him, and he'd go home and write his journal, this man is a hard man. I don't know if I'll ever get through to him. One day, standing out on a sidewalk, Nicky Cruz confronts David and pulls out a switchblade. David writes about this in a book called The Cross and the Switchblade. And he, he sticks that switchblade in David's face, and he's, I'm going I'm to kill you, preacher. Because he was messing with his guys, you know? And David looked at him and said, yes, Nicky, you could kill me. You could cut my body into a million pieces and spread them out on this sidewalk. And every one of those pieces would love you. Nicky Cruz had no defense to that kind of thing. He knew violence. He knew hate. He knew meanness and, and trouble. He didn't know how to deal with this preacher. Nicky Cruz ended up giving his life to Christ and became a dynamic preacher of the gospel all over the world. This gospel that we so treasure is the most powerful, not when we preach about, uh, in front of big crowds, and I've done that, and I love that, and I am not in any way critical. Thank God for those kind of preachers. But this kind of love is the most powerful when a human being becomes a living example of Jesus Christ through genuine love, speaking the truth in love, that shows who God is in humility, in courage, in boldness, in confrontation of hypocrisy, in gentleness and kindness, and the willingness to suffer so that someone else can come to Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you're amazing, Lord. We, we just we couldn't do it without you. Like the, like the AA groups, we find our higher power. Jesus, you're our higher power. There is no other higher power. We come to you and ask you for help, Lord. I, I, can't, I can't love like that on my own. I don't have the courage. I don't have the self-restraint. I don't have the wisdom. Jesus, help me, help us. I just encourage you to pray this as I'm praying. Pray this in your heart. Reach out to Jesus and say, help me to be a living example of who you are to my family, to my loved ones, to my community. Maybe there's some work that you need to do. Maybe there's someone you need to talk to. I pray for our families here at Upper Room, Lord. Bless our families. Bless our husbands and our, and our wives and our parents. 
All of us have stories and, and pain. There's some of you today that just, you have pain. It's unresolved and you're asking God for help and wisdom. I'm, I'm going to challenge you to take these things that I've shared to heart this morning and ask God to guide your steps and guide your communication with your loved ones. Lord, we commit ourselves to that. You're so kind to us, Lord. Thank you for calling us out when we need to be called out, and thank you for forgiving us and be kind to us when we just need a gentle touch. We're so grateful, Lord, for that. We, we are drawn to you because of that. Our intimacy with you is based on that. And Lord, I pray that would be the experience that every one of us would have in our primary relationships. In Jesus' name, amen.